Thanks for tuning into the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Brian O'Hengesa. Brian is the head nutritionist and coach with the Fit Clinic, which is probably Ireland's most well-known online nutrition coaching and consultancy service. Uh, I came to know Brian through our mutual friend, Rebecca Nolan, otherwise known as T to Triceps, and I really, really like his thoughts on nutrition, training, and especially philosophy, and how it can apply to so many different aspects of life. In this episode, Brian and I answer some listener questions about nutrition and training with a big focus on what to do during the current COVID-19 pandemic. We talk about our mutual love for slow cooking and why everybody else should be doing it. And we get into some tips on successful weight loss and ways to avoid snacking while spending so much time at home. I really hope you enjoy this episode and even learn something from it. And if you do, I'd love it if you left a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Or if you're listening on YouTube, consider hitting the like button and subscribe for even more great podcasts. And if you can, please share the podcast on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, or even LinkedIn. Not only do I massively appreciate it, but it helps to promote the podcast to more people, which really encourages other guests to come and speak, which means I can get even more great content out to you guys. So on to this conversation with Brian. Let's talk science. Brian, how we doing? Hey, what's up, Richie? How we going? Uh, I am good. How is quarantine treating you? It's fine. Yeah, it's um, it's not that different from my usual routine anyway, except for the distinct lack of people. But um, no, I'm managing okay, staying positive, uh, as I think we all have to do, right? That's Absolutely. The only option. Like, for, 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 I imagine you spend most of your time working from home anyway, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's it's really, from a, from a work standpoint, it's not that much different for me. But, yeah, pretty much the same for me too. Yeah, it's just uh, not being able to go out and train and do jiu-jitsu, which is you know the, one of the only social settings I get during the week, like besides the weekend. So yeah, missing that a little bit, but yeah, it is what it is. Just have to keep on keeping on. And, think, uh, think of it like this: when this is all over and done with, and you finally get to go go back to jiu-jitsu, you're just going to love hugging all those guys even more. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much what jiu-jitsu is, right? Just a bunch of guys hugging each other on mats. <laughs> yeah, very horizontal, very sweaty. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> if, I ever, if I ever meet any jiu-jitsu guys on the street, they'll just beat the crap out of me for saying that. Um, hopefully not. Actually, to be honest, every person I've ever met who does jiu-jitsu is sound out, present company included. So, uh, Thank you, sir. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's, it, it, it is interesting. It is a, a quite a sound community uh, from what I've seen because like, it's a martial art and there's a lot of mutual respect and very little ego. People are humble. Uh, there's a lot of humility to it, um, which tends to per- pervade then through. You know, if people are sound to you, then you'll be sound to them. And it's a, it's a nice, uh, it's nicely reciprocal like that. Exactly. And it's not... Like you said, it's not what expect, you, you'd expect. It's almost kind of counterintuitive because a lot of people assume that like martial arts are going to be very, very ego-driven. But I think a lot of that is just to do with um, like MMA and stuff like that and also the yeah, fighter and all that. We fighting, man, are we? And then there's a lot of that. But no, mm-hmm. you, you stick to the, the martial art roots ah. of it. Um, it. It's pretty good, yeah. No, none of this commercialized crap. No, like, I mean, that's all good stuff. But, um, you know, you have to adopt that uh, way of the warrior and uh, you know kind of the, uh, the the principles of honor and all that good stuff 
This is, this is probably why I, why I get on with you. Um, yeah, I like, I, like the, I like your philosophy, or your, your thoughts on philosophy anyway. Um, Brian, actually, just in case anybody doesn't know who you are, um, who are you? What do you do? Tell us a bit about yourself. Good point. Why am I here? Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a nutritionist, a nutrition coach, and I work for the Fit Clinic. So I'm the head coach there. Uh, the Fit Clinic is an online nutrition coaching and consultancy service, and we work with a wide, wide, wide range of people um, from general population to athletes, everything in between. Uh, we really with a team of coaches um, with a wide and varied skill set. So we, we, for that reason, can stand to help a really wide range of people. And I think we do an excellent job of that. Definitely one of the best coaching uh, services you're going to get in Ireland, if not further afield. Um, and it's all online. So we can work with people anywhere, anytime. Um, and yeah, that's, that's it in a very small nutshell um, in terms of who I am. Um, that's what I spend most of my time doing. That's, well, we're in the same field then, so that's how we would have met, um, or Rebecca kind of would have semi-introduced us. Um, introduced us without introducing us. Uh, Rebecca, everybody, teach the triceps. Um, introduce us without introducing us. I would have become familiar with you because Rebecca would have spoken about you and spoken of you very, very highly, I must say. And vice versa. So it's... Uh, yeah, it's like friends by association, and you got you had that social proof where, well, we both had social proof there for each other, um, and then we got to hang out at the Alanea Symposium, uh, which was which was fun times. That was cool. Uh, Absolutely. How, just out of curiosity, how did you get into nutrition in the first place? Um, I got into nutrition in the first place because when I was a teenager, I was playing uh, sports, and I was very very skinny. Um, I was playing a lot of basketball and I was, you know, decent enough at it, but, uh, like, uh, I would have been like, well, like probably 65 kilos or something when I was like 16, 17. Um, I, records only began when I started, when I was training for about a year. So that's the first time I was like, can remember weighing myself. Um, but you know, I started going to the gym then as soon as I was old enough so that I could, you know, bulk up a little bit, so I wasn't getting flung around the court, and then just fell in like that kind of cliche where you fall in love with the process and how interesting it is that what you do with your nutrition can change your physique and your performance. Um, so I got really, really into that, um, especially the training side of things. And then just when it came around to doing the CAO, seeing what they wanted to do for university, uh, going to study nutrition was a very, very obvious choice for me because it was something that I was really passionate about. I really enjoyed it. Um, so I went and did the, the, uh, the undergrad in UCD, uh, University College Dublin um, for human nutrition. And then, then I decided, you know, what, you know, what do I want to do now with this? And I always had it in mind that I wanted to work with people in a, you know, in a helping them improve their health and well-being setting. Um, but I didn't, uh, the whole as dietetic aspect didn't really appeal to me um, because of the, like the clinical side of it. I, I mm -hmm. kind of wanted to get to people before they have those kind of clinical manifestations and help them improve their health and quality of life. So I went and did the precision nutrition uh, coaching courses. The level two in that in particular is excellent. That's, um, that's a fantastic course and is definitely the best thing I've done in terms of allowing me to coach people uh, well um, because of the, the behavioral psychology skills and things they teach you and just the way they 
teach you to think about things. Um, so obviously having an undergrad background in nutrition science is very important. And that's kind of the credibility side of it as well. And, and knowing that you know what's going on, but in terms of actually being able to deliver and work with people that uh, precision nutrition level two was, was class. Um, and then, you know, like, as you know, as you know, well, you just keep learning then after that. Um, Cause you've got to stay on top of things and then, you know, have, have other interests like, you know, stoic philosophy and other types of philosophy and interested in like, how, you know, how we think about things, what we think about that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Um, I, I think you nailed it on the head there because a lot of, let's say academic um, nutrition courses are very like, they're fantastic for the, the kind of underlying science that they provide you with and the ability to analyze research and things like that. But almost from a practical setting, a lot of them, well, many of them can be lacking. So it's really, really good to kind of do a course that focuses more on the practical side that allows you to actually work with people. Because at the end of the day, you can have a huge amount of information in your head. But if you don't have a way of kind of conveying that information to a client, and not just that, like actually helping them to make changes in their own lifestyle and to kind of maintain those changes you know, it's not really of much use to anybody unless you're going to be um, an academic for your entire life, you know? Yeah, exactly. And that's something I, I, I say a lot, like, to myself and to other coaches who would ask me for advice on coaching. Is like, it's like, it's far from being good enough to just tell someone what to do. You know, you have to, you have to say, okay, this is what you should do. What, how would you go about doing this? Or what would stop you from doing this, do you think? And it's a lot of it is about dialogue and asking good questions um of people and helping them troubleshoot their their issues and, and overcome those problems um because if it was easy if it was as easy as just you know me saying to you okay you know do this and then that's it like you know n none of us would have jobs as coaches like because we wouldn't be needed so no absolutely um, and i i think i mentioned it to you the last time i saw you um at alan's thing in dublin um that I was rereading the book on motivational interviewing. And I, I was just going through one of the pages last night and I was literally talking about that. You know, you can provide people, most people who want to change are aware of the benefits to change and they're aware of the things that they, they probably need to do to, to bring about a change. But they've got that information and they still haven't, haven't done anything. So it's kind of a matter of asking questions of them as opposed to kind of telling them what they need to do and kind of, basically getting them to come up with solutions themselves. Um, and there's a, whole, there's a whole skill set involved in doing that with people and kind of helping them come about with their own solutions. Um, and it almost sounds like a lazy way of doing it, like, you know, uh, we're just helping somebody else come up with their own solutions. But, you know, yeah, th there's a little bit of skill involved. Otherwise, you know, we'd, we'd be out of the job, right? Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, you feel a bit useless at times. Um, not, not really, but, like, if you if like uh, take a bird's eye view on it or something, you'd be like, you know, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to coax it out of people how they can solve it themselves. Um, which on paper might look like you're not doing anything, but as you said, that is the skill of it. And it's a lot more likely that people will actually stick with it and do what needs to be done when they come up with those solutions themselves. Exactly. Exactly. I think so I probably would have said it to you at the time. The, like, it feels sometimes like, you know, in that, in the monorail episode of The Simpsons, um, when Leonard Nimoy is there and he says, oh, my work here is done. And then, and then Barney says to him, like, what do you mean? He didn't do anything. And then he just 
says, didn't I? And just disappears. <laughs> That's how I analogize the coaching process the best. Uh, <laughs> the funny thing is, is like, The Simpsons is so, okay, let, uh, let's say, I haven't watched The Simpsons in years, but the older episodes of The Simpsons, like, you know, the, the classic Simpsons, is infinitely quotable. There's just so much stuff in that. And I don't know why, but I must have seen every episode so many times that they're literally just ingrained into my head, into my head. And I can actually remember that moment so well. And I probably haven't seen that episode in about 15 years, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Seasons two through about 13 are, are gold. And it's, uh, well, one as well. We can't win there. But then after 13, it's all garbage. <laughs> Which is why I haven't seen it. Um, so today, um, I wanted to do a bit of a Q&A with you. And um, so we put up some question boxes to get some questions from people. Um, and just anybody who's listening right now, if you want to ask a question, feel free to put something into the question box right now. But we're going to go and fire away with a few questions that uh, we've received already. Um, and what we'll do is we're just taking turns asking some of the questions that we have. Um, and I think we can both answer them. What do you think about that, Brian? Like, you know, both give our own little bit of insight into it. Yeah, yeah, sounds good to me. Yeah. Okay. Um, just because I can, I'm going to tell you that you're going first. Uh, so first question, if you want to fire away with them, what do we have? Okay, to, to ask. Okay, I got a question on um, the diuretic effect of tea and coffee was, was the example that the, the person used. So the question was essentially like, do you count tea and coffee towards someone's fluid intake or water intake for the day? Um, you know, with the consideration that it may have a diuretic effect. So do you want to kick that off? Okay, cool. Yeah. So yeah, obviously both tea and coffee do have a notable diuretic effect, but The thing is, if you're drinking tea and coffee, you're drinking tea and coffee, okay, both of them are drinks. They're basically whatever solutes are from the tea and coffee diluted in quite a large quantity of water. So if you were to compare, let's say, equal quantities, let's say 500 mils of coffee, that's a big coffee, just thinking of it, 500 mils of coffee um, and 500 mils, like an Americano, and 500 mils of pure water, The diuretic of coffee would mean that you would pee out later a little extra water. But I think we have to think in like a net beneficial effect from the, the total amount of water that you're taking in. So you will pee out a little bit more than you would if you were just drinking water on its own, but you're still taking in far more water than you're peeing out immediately. So the net hydrating effect is it's positively hydrating. Um, and I think you'll find that with the vast majority of drinks. I think the only time I would ever say that uh, drinking coffee has a, a, a net dehydrating effect is if you are drinking nothing but like espressos throughout the day and nothing else because you're taking in a very, very tiny amount of liquid, but you're still getting the diuretic effect of that, of that coffee. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it's a good point as well with the, uh, with the espresso. Um, I, I've, I've seen somewhere and I can't remember where now because uh, I think it was a while ago but if the, if the intake is fairly consistent for, for something like caffeine um, that the diuretic effect kind of levels off so if you imagine that you or I you know, say, stop drinking coffee altogether um, for a few weeks and then we come back one day and have one or two 
it would have a, an increased diuretic effect on that particular day um, because it's it's way different to our baseline. But then if we kept that up, it would kind of level off. Um, so I don't know if you've seen that before. Again, I can't remember where I saw that, but um, I was under that impression and probably would notice that as well, uh, thinking about it. Yeah, no, that, that, that's definitely interesting. I, I haven't seen any research on that, but it would make, like, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if there would be some sort of a, an effect like that where if, you, if you're not a frequent drinker, having some coffee or some tea acutely would potentially have a, you know, a noticeable diuretic effect and you might adjust to that over time if you've got a, you know, relatively consistent or consistently high intake. So I think if people are like, like just kind of get to give people something to take, take away, if people are regular coffee and tea drinkers, it's not particularly an issue. Um, but if somebody suddenly decides to drink a couple of espressos and they've never had a coffee before, um, they may experience a little bit of, uh, you know, a more significant di diuretic effect. What well, would that be what you're getting at? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm getting at. And then, um, yeah, probably just to add to that, that's, you know, when I'm working with clients, I do count tea and coffee towards their fluid intake uh, for the day. So, yes, I, I do. Yeah, absolutely. Not just plain water, as, uh, as some people think it has to be sometimes, I think. Yeah, yeah. no, because I, I, get, I get that a lot. Like, you know, some people don't even think of, um, you know, their coffee or tea being, you know, part of their, their daily intake. And, you know, I, I think it should be. Like, you know, even to a certain extent, you know, some if you, somebody has a, a particularly high fruit intake, for example, you know, they're, they're getting a bit of a beneficial effect there. You know, I'm not going to count it towards their daily drinks or anything like that, but, you know, you're getting a hydrating effect from, from eating a lot of fruit. Um, so you can get it from a lot of different sources, not just drinking a glass of water. Um, so that was cool. Uh, one that I wanted to talk about okay I, I, I a lot of the questions that i have here are very very much related to what's going on right now with um uh, covid19 and everybody being stuck in quarantine um so the first one that i want to go with is has your shopping or cooking habits changed because of the epidemic hmm. um Shopping habits, yes. I'm, I'm not shopping as frequently as, a, as I would have been before. Um, so, yeah, buying things with the intention of these will last longer. So, yeah, more canned goods, um, vegetables and fruits more on the frozen side uh, rather than fresh all the time. Um, so trying, trying to keep it so that, like, I can probably stay away from a, a big supermarket for about two weeks at a time and maybe just top up uh, things from the local butcher uh, as I need to and then in terms of cooking habits uh, not really and this is this is one that a lot of my clients have actually reported this week is that because they're cooking so much more meals fresh and from scratch they they're almost getting sick of being in the kitchen um, and, and like I get that because you know I work from home all the time anyway but that's not to say I cook every meal from scratch because you know, I don't want to spend, I don't want to spend all the time every day doing that. Um, so what I've, what I've been saying to people a lot this week is, you know, you can still plan and you can still meal prep the same way as you would if you were having to go out to work um, because it's still going to have the same benefits. Uh, so that's just, that was just an interesting point that came up a lot this week. Yeah. Uh, changed? Yeah. I would say, um, there, so again, I, I, I work from home a fair bit as well. Um, so this hasn't been a major change 
for me. But from a shopping perspective, the only thing that's changed is I'm shopping less frequently, definitely. Because um, usually I'm, because I live very, very close to the supermarkets here, I'm, you know, pretty happy to kind of go out a few times a week to, to pick up a few groceries. Um, and I used to do a big one, a big shop once a week. So that's what I'm doing now. Uh, I actually went shopping this morning um, because I thought it'd be nice and quiet. And so this morning was the first time that I experienced the queues and the, uh, let's say, the limit on numbers of people going into the supermarkets, which was a little bit surreal for me. Um, but besides that, nothing has changed. Like I've, I looked at my, my cupboard and... So my cupboard is always stocked because I tend to buy loads and loads of ingredients. So I always have them so I can, you know, so I can cook something, you know, not because I'm afraid of some crazy apocalypse or something like that. Um, I'm not, I, I'm not one of those guys. I don't, you know, wear tinfoil hats and stuff like that. And um, I don't have a, a bunker in my basement yet. Um, but so my shopping hasn't changed majorly except for I'm just doing one bigger shop. Um, I probably have a few more frozen things and I'm probably buying uh, cuts of meat, meat in bulk because um, I'm doing a little bit more bulk cooking at the moment. And that brings us on to the cooking. So cooking really hasn't changed much at all. So I always do some bulk cooking at the start of the week or, you know, the over the weekend to kind of get me through my, my lunches. Yeah. And then I'll always cook in the evening as well. Um, and I just do a lot of slow cook cooking. Um, so I've got the slow cooker on right now. I'm, you know, cooking up a big piece of meat, which I'm going to basically chop up and freeze. And I'll have loads for later on. It's just, it'll just be kind of a matter of heating it and throwing in a few veggies. Um, yeah. So, yeah, not major changes for me. Just, I suppose, I'm, I'm doing more of what I like to do, which is a lot of bulk cooking and preparing stuff in advance and then kind of having meals ready to go for me. Um, and... It's interesting that you, that you do say that that a lot a lot of your clients are saying that they're kind of getting sick of cooking because a lot of my clients in the past week have been saying something similar. Is that they're they've found that their meal prep is actually easier at the moment because they're at home and they're doing a lot of cooking for themselves. Um, and I think it's I think it's a great thing. And actually, you know, just to kind of go off on a bit of a segue on this, I I'm potentially a little bit too positive about this, but like. I know this is a, a, a very, very serious situation right now, but I think at the end of this, people could potentially come out of this in a better place uh, when it comes to like pre pre preparing food and getting used to preparing food, maybe learning a few new recipes um, and maybe getting better at, at organizing their own time. Right? No, what do you think about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree with you that, yes, it's, it's a terrible situation. That's not one that we want to be in. But like we were talking about the other day, um, you know, off air that, you know, the, the situation is going to be how it is, no matter what. So you can either choose to be positive about it and try and make the most of it, or you can be miserable about it. And it's, it doesn't change how it's actually going to run. So you may as well, for the most part, try and be positive. And, you know, something I'm, I'm asking a lot of people is, you know, say a few months down the line when hopefully this is all over, if I was to then ask you, Richie, how did you spend that time in, quar in quarantine? What would you like to say back to me? Um, and that's that's a question that I'm trying to get people to think about, you know, how can I make the most of this time? What would I like to do with it? Um, and yeah, I agree. I think, it's, I think it's a great opportunity for a lot of people to improve their nutrition habits, like you were saying. And, and to be a little bit more on track as well, because, you know, all of a sudden there's no going out. There's no 
there's no drinking, there's no eating out in restaurants, um, no cafes, no brunches, none of that. Like, which is, you know, I'm going to miss all that. Like, I like to eat out uh, and to go out. But if you look at it in terms of how people sometimes struggle, that can be part of the reason. And, you know, provided they're not just going and, and slamming takeaways eight times a week um, during this period, yeah, they do stand to improve their habits. Because, yeah, like you said, they have a bit more time. They can improve their cooking skills. They can improve their recipe base, especially if they watch enough of your stories. Um, so, yeah, it could, it could be really positive. And I wanted to say there as well that, because uh, you mentioned slow cookers, that, you know, the, the number one regret people have on their deathbed is that they didn't start slow cooking soon enough. <laughs> um, because that's... You probably see it as well yourself, but like it's it's relentless that when you like I, I aggressively make sales pitches for slow cooking because you know you and I both know how good it is, and then when someone buys into that and gets it going, they're like, ah, Jesus, how did I ever live without this? So, <laughs> for any of you watching, get a slow cooker if you don't have one yet. You'll regret it if you don't. <laughs> yeah, you will, you, will, you will regret it on your deathbed when you are holding the hands of your grandchildren and your children and you look them in the eye and they'll be like, do you have anything to say to you? And they'll be like, Jesus Christ, I wish I bought that crockpot. Uh, exactly. Um, but no, it, 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 okay, look, it, not to turn this into an episode about slow cooking, but they are the business. Like, I, I've got... I've got a massive chunk of beef in a slow cooker right now that is cooking down for me. And at the end of it, I am going to turn that into pulled beef perfection that I'm going to have for the next week or so. Um, and I'm doing nothing. I literally put the thing into a pot. I threw some spices on top. I put the lid on and I walked away. I don't need to think about that until six o'clock this evening. Adam. Yeah. Like, so let me get this straight, Richie. You're not watching that right now and having to tend to it. I'm not. Whoa. I know, right? Whoa, everybody watching this, whoa. Um, Set it and forget it. Actually, a question on, uh, on slow cooking, because I've seen mixed uh, opinions on this, but how much liquid do you think needs to go into the slow cooker with the, the food? Okay, right. So I got this one last week as well. I cook chickens in my slow cooker, like they're slow cooker roast chickens all the time because it's really, really easy. And again, it's a just forget about it. I just put the chicken in, I put in some salt and pepper, and that's it. I don't put any liquid into it at all. And what happens is, while it's cooking, whatever liquid is in the chicken seeps out, and I get a really, really good stock at the end of it, um, which, I, which I save as well. Um, what's cooking right now, I've got some beef in there. I did put in about half a cup of stock, just because I, it's very, very lean. And um, I wasn't so sure that there was, I was going to get much um, juices flowing out. We'll see when it's finished. But I'm not worried about, you know, thing breaking or bursting in half or anything like that if I don't put any um, liquid into it. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, Sarah there saying she's got a slow cooker on her shopping list now, so she's sold. Um, yes. Add another one to the, um, the, uh, the list of cultural cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I actually have a funny picture I need to send you on, on cults uh, after this. I will. I, I have a, uh, a slow cooker cookbook. I have, t I have two slow cooker cookbooks. One says you must add liquid and you must cover, you know, ideally about two thirds of 
the food that's in there. And then the other one, you know, it'll use things like chopped tomatoes and stuff like that. Um, and like, you know, soy sauce, things like that, but it won't have like this emphasis on extra liquid. You know what I mean? Because when you think about it, anything that you put in, any food that you put in, like if you're putting in a vegetable or if you're putting in a meat, there's going to be a relatively high water content in that anyway. And that is going to seep out over time. Um, and because you always cook in a slow cooker with the lid on, that vapor isn't escaping. So it's always staying in there. And it, it just cooks so slowly as well that I, okay, look, I, I, I could be, this could be absolute bull coming out of my mouth right now. Um, and like somebody who's, who works for a big uh, slow cooker is probably looking at me just like shaking his head going, no, 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 I can't believe he's doing that. I need to warn the masses that he's wrong. But I genuinely don't think that, you know, you're going to destroy your slow cooker if you don't put any liquid in just because it all seeps out so quickly out of the food that you're cooking. Um, there was a question... Oh, we, we're, we're getting a, a, quite a few questions in now. Yeah. Slow cooking for vegetarians. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Ideas. Wait, do you want to fire, with, fire away with that one first or will I go? No, no, you go ahead. You, you, you were okay, right. so it's I haven't, just because I'm not a vegetarian, I haven't done a lot of um, vegetarian cooking in the slow cooker itself. Although this week I did experiment with making um, a really, really creamy tomato-based sauce in the slow cooker with um so instead of using cream i used cashew nuts that i soaked overnight um and then i ground them up in my like my nutribullet and then i poured those in and they helped thicken up the sauce i put in some cornflour as well they thickened up the sauce i got this really really luscious thick creamy tomato sauce obviously that was cooked with um you know some other vegetables and there was stock in there as well but i think the one thing that i say is when you're cooking anything with um, any vegetarian foods is because you don't have, let's say, that umami flavor that comes from meat. Um, you need to make sure that you're stocking up on plenty of like really, really high flavor foods that have a lot of like glutamate. So things like tomatoes are fantastic when you're using a slow cooker because they have a lot of glutamate, a lot of that umami. Um, mushrooms, uh, I, I love mushrooms for flavor. Uh, the only issue is my girlfriend doesn't like mushrooms at all, so I, I don't get to use them all that often, which is a terrible shame. But um, I use a lot of porcini mushrooms, dried ones, which I throw, like, if, if, you've ever, if you've never used porcinis, they're amazing for just giving a really rich, strong, mammy-flavored stocks. Um, you could use a little bit of kombu, which is a type of seaweed that they use in Japan for making stock. Again, it has a really, really high glutamate content. Um, and then some soy-based uh, products. So, like, for example, miso or soy sauce have, uh, again, a lot of mami, a lot of flavor, and they add that to, to anything that you cook in, in a slow cooker. And then, like, you know, using your basics, like plenty of onions, mushrooms, celery to kind of to build up the flavor of what whatever stock you're cooking in there. Those yeah. are my ideas. That's really, yeah, really good ideas. And I'm learning a lot, uh, from especially the cooking side of things, from uh, having connected with you. Um, <laughs> But I would say that, yeah, because a lot of the meals that you can make, say, in a, in a pot or, or something on the stove, that they also transfer into the slow cooker. So you got things like tagines and chilies and stews and casseroles, soups as well. You can make hearty enough soups. Like it, you, can, you can do all of those, you know, vegetarian and do them in a slow cooker. So, it, you know, it's, it's nearly as simple as just taking out the, the animal products and adding probably pulses like beans, lentils, chickpeas, whatever it is. So 
you know, you can easily make a vegetarian tagine that'll taste class. Um, vegetarian chilies taste class. Uh, curries, again, class. Um, and, you know, if you, want, if you want to make soups, so you can add pulses to them to, you know, bulk them up a bit, boost the protein content, make them a bit more satiating and satisfying. So that's, um, yeah, it's it's just as easy done. Um, you know, it, don't, it doesn't have to be an entire chicken. It doesn't have to be uh, a shoulder of lamb or a big chunk of beef or whatever it is. If you look at the, the kind of foods that slow cooking lends itself to, um, it's all those kind of casseroles, stews, chilies, curries, soups, <clears throat> tagines, and they all have fantastic uh, veggies. So, yes. Absolutely. Yes to vegetarian slow cooking as well. One thing that I read, actually, one thing for anybody who's not Irish and who's listening to this, class means good, okay? <laughs> um, <laughs> one thing I'm going to try uh, this week is um, just because for, at the moment, like, there, there's no shortage of food at the moment, but there are a few items that I've noticed have been really, really hard to get. One of them is flour for some reason. So I'm assuming that at the end of this, everybody in the UK and Ireland are going to be, everyone's going to be a master baker. That's all I'm, master baker. That's what I said, okay? Put <laughs> uh, your mind out of the, out of the gutter. Um, everybody's going to be really good at baking. Um, and the other thing I can't get are tinned beans. So I bought some dried beans and I want to try making my own uh, beans in the slow cooker. Um, and then I'm going to freeze some of those up just so we have them um, for when we need them. But um, yeah, everybody, you'll, you'll see how that goes in a few days once I put it up on my uh, Instagram. So It could be bought as weight though. You have to consider that. They could. Um, a buddy of mine, I watched a video of his um, this morning on Instagram and he... <laughs> He lives in Singapore and he was doing uh, split squats and he was using some dumbbells, but he also had a backpack and he had a massive, like, you know, one of those like 10 kilo bags of rice in the backpack to add extra weight on. It was, it was very clever. I'm seeing a lot of clever workarounds when it comes to... Uh, home. Yeah, like you see me, I had, a, I had a 20 kilo bag of coal there, um, not yesterday, the day before yesterday. Um, and using that as, as re resistance for doing lunges and split squats up the garden. Um, a bag of coal? A 20 kilo bag of coal, yeah. Holy crap. How was your, how were your shoulders after that? It was fine. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not really uncomfortable. Um, you just like switch side, um, just for, for symmetry, you know, how important that is. Um, <laughs> but no, it worked well. So I think, you know, that's, that, that was a good shout. People need to go buy bags of coal because the weights uh, are sold out in a lot of places. Um, you can get them in 10 kilo bags, get them in 20 kilo bags. You know, if you want, if you're able to get two 20 kilo bags up on top of you, like that's, that's not bad uh, resistance for. I'll tell you, i tell you one thing. People won't be going back to the gym after this um, because everybody will just have so much equipment at home. Like, I may as well keep using this until I, uh, get my money's worth out of it. Uh, right. So what's your, what's the next question on your list? Uh, next question on my list was, um, somebody said they are losing weight and they're eating in a deficit, but they're eating enough protein, but they're afraid it's, uh, muscle tissue loss. Um, so if you, well, they're, you know, con they're concerned about that. Um, so if you want to, you want to take that away uh, okay so, yeah, so eating in a deficit uh weight loss um eating enough protein uh at least uh, as long as i understood it correctly 
Um, and then some concerns about weight loss being lost as muscle mass. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I would say that if somebody is losing weight and they are concerned about losing muscle, by far the the most significant muscle sparing effect will be had by doing some form of resistance exercise. Um, so like there, there have been quite a few studies done on this and they've all shown that people can maintain muscle on relatively low. And like when I'm saying relatively low, I'm talking about like um, the kind of the, the, world, the world Health Organization kind of standard for low, which is 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. People can maintain muscle on that if they're doing sufficient resistance exercise. Um, and they've even, there's even been studies that show that people can sometimes gain muscle if they increase that protein intake to 1.2. And for let's say the 1.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. And I would say for the majority of people who would be following yourself and myself, that's probably, you know, a relatively normal protein intake for them if they're like, you know, trying um, any way at all to get the protein in. So pro get, keeping the protein up is good, but I think getting that resistance exercise in is incredibly important because um, when we think about it, the, the stimulus for maintaining muscle or for muscle growth is is not from initially from protein intake it's from a need from your body because your body is doing some sort of exercise so your body is realizing okay i need to maintain this muscle or i need to increase this muscle um depending on the amount of exercise that somebody's doing um and in that instance protein intake is facilitated for maintaining muscle or for for that muscle growth um and then the only other thing that i would think of is even my caveat would be is like while you know protein intake and resistance exercise are important for maintaining muscle they can only do so much because if somebody's deficit is so extreme so if somebody is losing weight so quickly they're still going to lose a little bit of muscle mass and we do know that slower rates of weight loss are usually better for preserving um muscle mass and there was a fantastic paper that came out um I remember Eric Helms was one of the co-authors on it and uh, the other author was a guy by the name of Campbell um, out of Scotland. Um, and it was basically looking at professional bodybuilders, well, yeah, na natural bodybuilders. And it was showing that though the more experienced ones tended to have much longer uh, preps, so a much longer diet, um, and they tended to maintain more muscle mass over the course of that diet as well. So, um, yeah, those are just a few of my thoughts on it. Um, no, I, yeah, that pretty much covers it, I think. Um, <clears throat> so in terms of how, how do you know how much weight is too much weight to be losing? Um, I would say if it's like much above 1% of your body weight per week, as that averages over, say, the course of a month, um, no, you can, you can definitely lose more than that, uh, on a weekly basis. If you're in an aggressive, say, dieting phase, um, you know, and that won't be of any detriment, really, um, as long as you have some experience with it, um, just in terms of the, you know, the behavioral component, the adherence component to that. Um, but as long as, like you said, your resistance training and your eating of protein, like your muscle is pretty safe. Um, so, yeah, if and, you know, we should probably say as well that what it takes, how much stimulus it takes to maintain muscle mass 
is not very much compared to what it takes to build it, right? Absolutely. So you can you can probably most people watching this can probably get away with uh, doing less than you would think in terms of if you just wanted to maintain muscle tissue. Um, so as long as you're doing something with some sort of intent um, and your protein intake is reasonable and like you said, as long as your deficit is not enormous, then then you're pretty safe and wouldn't worry about it. One thing that I think is it's very, very difficult to quantify, but you know, if we're talking about like a, let's say a bare minimum that people could do to, to maintain muscle, just from a training perspective, what, like, and again, I'm going to say that on my part, just because I'm, I'm not as uh, knowledgeable on the whole training side of things. Um, what would you say would be a kind of a bare minimum that people could do to, to kind of, to maintain muscle um, over the course of the diet? Okay. Um, like it's, uh, I'm, like yourself, it's not my um, area of expertise either. Um, and I, I know Mike Grisretel in Renaissance Periodization talks about this a lot in terms of you know, minimal effective volume and, and, and maintenance volume. So that's probably something people could check if they wanted to see, like what's a, what's a minimum requirement. But um, I've seen him talk about it before. And it's, it's very little. It's maybe like two relatively low volume um, sessions a week is plenty to, to maintain muscle mass. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very, very little. Um, yeah, two, yeah, two sessions, like, so what we, how we quantify low volume, like probably less than, less than 12, like probably less than 10. It's very hard to quantify, I suppose, less than 10 sets per, per body part, um, per week or, or something like that, or maybe even less. Absolutely. You, I think people would be surprised with like, you know, when it comes to actually, let's say if, if people went over to have a look at Mike Israel's stuff on Renaissance periodization, you'd be surprised when you put that into practice, you know, how quickly you can do that during the week. And, you know, like, especially as, as things are right now, um, people can't make it to the gym. Um, people would be, should be surprised with how much or how little they can get away with and still maintain um, maintain their gains um, over the, the course of this quarantine, I think. <laughs> uh, someone asked a question there um, about uh, what do we think of two-a-day training? Yeah. I saw that, yeah. Um, so here, here's my, here are my thoughts on training. Um, I'm lazy, uh, so I try to do as little as possible. But here's the thing. I think if somebody has a reason for training twice a day and you know you would need to have a, a definite reason for it so it might be um for example a bodybuilder wanting to get in as much volume as they realistically can um so you might want to go in in the morning and do a session on one particular for example if somebody wants to go and do a session on one particular muscle group in the morning and then either hit that muscle group again later in the evening with something else or do a different muscle group in the evenings um as I think as long as somebody can do that to a level where they're not exceeding the, their kind of recoverable volume, so they're not exceeding the recovery capacity of their body, they're not burning themselves out, if they're eating enough, if they're sleeping well, if they're taking care of all of the other factors that they need to be taking care of when it comes to training, if they can maintain that, I think that's absolutely fine if that's, let's say, conducive to their goals. Um, and then it might be somebody who might, 
be doing a little bit of concurrent training. So they might train in the morning and do a little bit of um, strength training. And in the evening or the afternoon, they might do some endurance work or something like that. That's another situation where I think it's fine. I think when somebody is doing that and they've got so much work volume of exercise, they do need to be a little bit more conscious of their recovery capacity. And that's kind of all down to managing stress, managing sleep, managing, um, you know, proper nutrition, sufficient nutrition. Um, But it is doable. But yeah, I think it just people need to be a little bit more conscious of the other factors going on in their life at the moment. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I would agree with that. And like you're saying there, it all comes down to recovery capacity and what you're actually able for. And then also, you know, what's practical in your actual life and, and managing that and managing your time. Um, you know, say if you're, you know, you could potentially, if you're just off and you don't do anything else, you could easily train, I'd say twice a day. You know, if you've no other kind of external stressors um, except training and you can make sure you sleep enough and eat enough, um, I'd say, yeah, you're probably going to adapt well to that and, and get a lot of results arguably from that. Um, but yeah, just the fact is it's not going to be practical for most people. I think what you said about training concurrently and, you know, you know uh, having different emphasis on the, the different sessions and keeping them separate um, is probably pretty good if you, if you can do that. Um, you know, instead of trying to tack, say, endurance work onto the end of a weight training session, um, that's probably a good idea. And, yeah, it's, it kind of comes back to, like, there's no such thing as overtraining, provided you can recover from yeah. what you're doing. Um, and, like, you know, last year when I was in Los Angeles for a couple of weeks um, and then went on to Vancouver, uh, you know, I, I had a couple of weeks off work at that point and, you know, managed to string 21 days of training together in a row um, and, was, and was fine and like really enjoyed it because myself and, and Sam were just living, we're, <laughs> we're in Venice beach and going to train in the, the girls gym there. So like Ooh. just living the, the good California bodybuilding lifestyle uh, for a few weeks, um, and, you know, make sure we're eating enough, make sure we're sleeping enough. And uh, I will say we didn't do an awful lot of barbell work, which probably helped in terms of recovery, like in terms of um, nervous system fatigue. Um, we're doing a lot more like machine-based stuff because it was, you know, goals is kind of like a playground. Just want to enjoy enjoy doing that. Um, but then lo and behold, once I got back to work, I couldn't sustain that because of all the extra recovery demands that requires and the extra stress. So yeah, it was a fun time. And you definitely stand to make a lot of gains there because, you know, if you're training more, you're potentially eating more and then you're benefiting from things like nutrient partitioning where, you know, more of the amino acids will go towards uh, muscle building and if you're eating more, there's more nutrient availability overall. Um, so I think that can be beneficial. That's kind of like, you know, train as much as possible within your recovery capacity and, you know, time constraints, realistically speaking, and then therefore eat as much as possible as well of nutrient dense food. I think that's like the ideal situation to be in for, for progress. Yeah. And, and it's, it very, very much is an ideal situation. It's not something that everybody can, can absolutely manage. And, and I think a lot of people just don't realize how much day-to-day stress, like you mentioned, you know, just going back to work there or like relationship stress or anything like that or financial stress, they can all contribute to reducing your um, your recovery capacity. And I think, it, you know, for for most people, if 
you know, they've got a very, very low stress job. And if they've got a lot of free time and they've got very, very few worries, or if they're a very, very, let's say, not a type A personality, um, I think achieving, you know, a high workload and kind of achieving gains when it comes to a bodybuilding style and lifestyle is, is a lot more feasible. Um, yeah. Just just my thoughts. I think one, one last question that I want to finish up on, we'll, we'll answer really quickly because we are running low on time on this. Um, and it's, uh, I want to get your thoughts on it. Uh, it was more of a comment, but I can't stop snacking out of boredom right now. Help. That was that was all I got. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, and this, this has come up a few times as well um, this week. And just in general, in the general, uh, in, the, in the bubble um, or the echo chamber that we're in here um, with nutrition and coaching people, um, like, I, can un- I understand it. But I don't want to. I don't want to sound like smart here. But if you're eating because you're bored, the solution to that, like a lot of times, for you to not be bored. So if you, you, it's like we said at the start of this this conversation. Like you know, if you want, how how do you want to spend this time? Like when you want when you reflect on it, do you want to say you were bored, you know, grazing while watching Netflix eight hours a day, or do you want to? do something new or re-engage with something that you have lost touch with or people you've lost touch with um, or learn a new skill or learn, like do anything, learn about something new. Any, like there's so many options, so many ways you could occupy your time. And like myself and, uh, and Gary McGowan are talking about this the other day. It's like, just don't, we can't understand this, this being bored thing. Like, you know, how does, how does it happen? Because, like if you if you give me another four or five hours a day, it's like man, I would love that. Like I will I will eat those hours up and just fill them with like you know more, either like more training, more sleep, or more learning. Uh, pick up different hobbies, different skills that you don't have time to do. And um, spend time with your family, call your loved ones. It doesn't it doesn't all have to be completely productive. You know, it just it, no. it can be anything really. Yeah, as long as it's not putting food in your mouth. Yeah. Um, so like, that's, that's one thing to look at. Like if you're eating out of boredom, you know, can you alleviate the boredom somehow so that you don't, you're not inclined to do that. And then like from a practical standpoint, controlling your food environment a bit better, um, is a potential one. So not having snacks so, so readily, readily accessible, uh, definitely not them having in your line of vision. Um, where, like if you go into the kitchen, um, trying to have like a, some sort of a structured, routine to when you're eating your meals uh you know you can prompt yourself ask ask yourself you know am i actually hungry for this or am i just bored or or stressed or anxious or whatever it is um you have anything to add like it's the, the boredom thing kind of you know it, it, it gets a chord with me uh sometimes because i'm like oh man i would love to have that much free time where i could be feeling bored you know yeah no i i i agree i've like I've, I've written about it before, I said, like idle hands put food in your mouth. Um, something I've said before. Uh, like not being bored is hugely important. Um, I think. Uh, but you know, I think like, yourself and myself, we we do work from home, um, so we're kind of used to managing our time and being like you know being productive. But some people, you know, might have a job where their job ends as soon as they clock off, and that's that's absolutely fine as well. And I can understand, you know, they might have a situation at home. Um, where they have a little bit more free time. But yeah, occupying that free time with something else, be it reading, be it 
it doesn't, and it doesn't necessarily have to be um, productive. Like for God's sake, if you're feeling hungry, do something else. Like go play a video game or something. Yeah. Um, go read a book. Um, I don't know. Go have sex with your girlfriend or something like that. Do anything as long as you're not eating food. Like just don't do it. And then, like you said, controlling the food environment is incredibly important as well. And right now, just because everybody, you know, it's harder to get to the supermarkets, you know, maybe try, try not buying that pack of biscuits if it's biscuits that you're always going for or not having, you know, you know, uh, an assorted pack of crisps in the house or something like that. And if you still feel that you want something to eat, or something to kind of help with the snacks. Maybe just go for snacks that are a little less calorically dense and a little less hyper palatable. So, you know, going for some fresh fruit or, you know, having some unsalted nuts or something like that. Something that you're not going to, you know, want to eat an entire pack of straight away. Um, and that's not as easy to eat straight away. And something that's got more volume and is going to contribute more to satiety. You know, those are other options as well. But I think what you, what you mentioned, that habit of, you know, not being bored, that's the most important part because you, you want to nip it in the bud, really. And I think nipping in the bud by not being bored is the most um, important aspect of it. Yeah. And yeah, like the the point you're making about it doesn't have to be productive use of time. Um, yes, yeah, so I would like to emphasize that because I can definitely get carried away with that um, at times in, in terms of being like super productive. But I will say that there's a large portion of my clients that I am super glad that they now have to just kind of stop and chill out a little bit and not be so go, go, go all the time. And it's going to benefit them. So there, there is definitely a place for that. Um, but I think it just comes, it comes back to like, you know, how do you, who, how do you want to spend this time or how should you spend this time? Um, you know, cause instant, you should probably know if yourself, if you need a break, like there's plenty of people that I'm coaching that's like, great your you know your exams are cancelled um you know you have to you have to work less or you know you're not running around as much that's good you can actually catch up on some sleep here um your stress levels are lower and that's actually gonna be a good thing for you um so yeah there yeah just to to make that point as well um someone asked in the questions here are you not supposed to be practicing a day of silence at Bino? and i am Bino. Um, just to the context of that is myself and my friend James here are currently doing the daily stoic, uh, 10 day spring challenge. And I haven't looked at the one today. I only saw the subject line of it. It's, it's an email, a daily email. Um, but I think it's supposed to be a day of silence. So that's clearly not happening today. Um, a day, a day of silence where a day where you just don't talk or. Well, I haven't, I haven't read the email yet, but, um, I'm guessing that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, potentially, I don't know. Maybe it's just like, well, yeah, that, that would, yeah. it's kind of self-explanatory, isn't it? Like a day of silence. Um, yeah. Well, we're, 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 we're taking one for the team right now for the stoic team and putting out some good information said you, you can take your day of silence tomorrow. Um, well, no, cause I'm going out to Cork. I can't do that. <laughs> no chance. So, no. um, um I, I think we're, we're, we're just about to run out of time because they're only going to give us uh, 60 minutes for this live. Um, but right. before, before we finish up, Brian, do you, um, how do, can people follow you or get in contact with you or kind of find out more about what you do? Sure. Um, so you've got my, my own Instagram account, which is Brian O'Hangasa. Hopefully people are able to click into that from here. Um, and then also 
for like that's a personal account but then for more well i mean it's i try to add some value too but i'm not as frequent with my posting as i used to be um because more of it goes on to the fit clinic uh instagram page so that's just at the fit clinic um lots of good nutrition health content on there um and if you want to find out more about the coaching services um, or consulting services, it's uh, thefitclinic.ie or thefitclinicnutrition.com. They'll both bring you to the same place. Okay. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, I had, w- I had one joke question to ask you. But if the time Go on, quickly. Ask me, see if we can get it in before it do you Do you ever, uh, you know that song, Hey Mickey? You know that song? Yeah. Do you ever replace Mickey with Richie and then sing that to yourself as you go on? So you're like, oh, Richie, you're so fine. Richie, you're so fine. You blow my mind. Hey, I, do you I, ever sing that to yourself? I don't, and I haven't, but I know what I'm going to be sh- singing in the shower in front of the mirror today. Thank you, Brian, for that. My girlfriend's really going to appreciate that as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, that's, that's pretty good that we close on that is a good note to end on um, Brian it's been an absolute pleasure I really appreciate it um, take care of yourself back home and hopefully we'll be able to get you on here again and we'll have another chat again in the future okay yes sir it was fun as always alright uh, have a good take day. care talk soon take care thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the health scientist podcast And if you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, or maybe even share a link on social media, your Instagram stories, Facebook, Twitter, even LinkedIn. It really helps spread word of the podcast, which means I can continue to get great guests to speak about different topics in health, which means more content for you. It really means a huge amount to me personally too. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at B More Nutrition. That's at B underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.